0: As I said, we're going to continue on in 1 Corinthians. We'll be in 1 Corinthians 8 this morning. We'll do the whole chapter, just 13 verses, 1 Corinthians 8. And I'll read the whole chapter as we begin. I'm reading out of the ESV. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge... I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. In a word, how would you describe the feeling you had when you first got your driver's license? That moment when you pulled out of your parents' driveway and hit the road all on your own? If you're like me, the word that best sums that up is freedom. I'm free. I could go anywhere. And for me, when I got my license, it was going to my buddy Tyler's house and hanging out there and playing video games like we always did. But there's a sense that you could do anything you want when you got that driver's license to go anywhere. And also, if you're like me, there's another feeling that hit you soon after you got your driver's license. And, and that feeling hit when you got on the road and realized that there were traffic signs everywhere, and stoplights, stop signs, speed limits. And you think, I could go anywhere, but I only have $5 in my pocket, and this tank will run out sooner or later. Then you realize you have obligations, and curfews, homework, and things to attend to, so you go home. And what you experience is at first freedom, and then all the restraints that come with freedom. That no matter how free we may think we are, we may be, that there's always something that constrains us, restrains us, or puts limitations on us. And that really will be Paul's kind of topic for the next number of chapters in first corinthians over these chapters really from eight through fourteen or so paul's gonna be dealing with a lot of practical matters of life in the church about eating food taking pay for ministry uh how the way men and male and female works out in the church, the unity of the church, worship, how we use spiritual gifts and there 's kind of an underlying theme to all of that, an underlying rule for paul and it really is that no matter what we 're doing or how we live as a church, love and unity have to ground everything we do that that is the restraint upon us, no matter how we 're operating or what the topic is paul 's going to keep bringing his people back to. What loves the other person? What serves the other person? How do we build unity in the church? And those are the things that have to constrain or limit how we operate. That's the conviction of Paul and the conviction of God, really. And he's going to apply that here in chapter 8 to the topic of eating food sacrificed to idols. It's a question about the Corinthians' freedom to eat food offered to pagan idols. In that time, there were temples throughout Corinth and where they lived. In order to be part of the social and commercial fabric of the town, one would almost by necessity have to participate in some ways in, in temple life or eating food that had been sacrificed in the temple. So a very real question for the early church and for the Corinthians was what kind of freedom? Do we have in this? That's not a question we directly have in our culture of eating food offered to idols that doesn't directly relate to us. But the guide and the rule that Paul will put forward does affect us, and Paul will give a rule that will guide us kind of for all of life, for all of our thinking. And the rule can be summed up in this way: that what is permissible for you must be limited by what is loving to your brother. What is permissible to you must be limited by what is loving to your brother or sister. That as you express the freedom you have as a person, as a Christian, God gives us all sorts of freedoms to do what our conscience allows. And as we express that freedom and live in this world... There is a limit on that freedom. And the limit is, what will be most loving to your fellow believer? Certain Corinthians had felt like they had total freedom to eat food offered to idols. And Paul will say, how does love for your fellow believer impact that freedom you feel? Will this build up your fellow believer? What is permissible for you must be limited by what is loving to your brother. And really what Paul's talking about here are limitations. That's how I'm going to break up the text. Verses 1 through 3, Paul talked about the limitation of loveless knowledge. Verses 4 through 6, the limitation of worthless idols. And then finally, his main point, verses 7 through 13, the limitation of personal freedom. Let's talk about first the limitation of loveless knowledge. Paul's going to start building his case here, verses 1 through 3, and he'll talk about the the limits that knowledge has, the limitation of knowledge. Knowledge itself is limited. The Limitation of loveless knowledge, verses 1 through 3. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So as I said, this passage, this chapter, addresses the topic of food offered or sacrificed to idols in the temple. Not a huge question for us, a huge question for the first century church. Like, for them, this was really, really important. Why? Because idol worship was interwoven into the fabric of the culture. Most people were polytheists, and there were multiple temples to multiple gods, and these temples were used for a variety of functions. You know, We use our church building for a variety of functions. People come and vote here. We have, I don't know if you know this, we have line dancers who come and use it Tuesday nights. The line dancing here. Like, we use this building for a number of things. Temples were no different. They were used for a number of things, not just religious worship, but they were also used for business meetings, funerals birthday parties, weddings, those kinds of things. And if you were part of a trade guild, if you were merchants and you're part of that guild, then often you would meet in the temple. But the difference is that when they met in the temple, they would eat food, and that food was universally almost always food that had been left over from idol sacrifices, sacrifices to pagan gods. So the food that was shared there was idol food. And there's a real question the church and whether or not they could participate in those kinds of meals. We don't have to think about that. When we take our kids to like birthday parties at Chuck E. Cheese, we don't have to worry that the pizza had been previously sacrificed to a pagan god. Like That's not part of our concern. Um, I don't think we have that concern. They did at the time. And beyond that, not only would you know that whatever food was served in that temple was offered to an idol... Also, a lot of the food that was sold in the market had been previously offered to idols. It was leftovers from temple worship. So the food that they were buying, or if you're going to a neighbor's house, and the food that they're serving would often be idol food. So it was a real question for first century Christians. Can we eat this stuff? Are we participating in idolatry and false religion if we do. And the apostles actually ruled on this question. In Acts 15, there's a council of the early church. They were trying to figure out a number of things of how Jew and Gentile are going to get along together in this new Christian church. One of the things they spoke on was eating idol food. Acts 15.28 For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled from sexual morality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. So the apostles ruled. Abstain from food offered to idols. And this was a pretty universal ruling, and in fact, maintained by Jesus himself in the, his uh, words to the churches in Revelation. Two times, he says to churches to not eat the food that had been offered to idols and critiques them for doing so, for participating in idol worship. So, with that ruling, then, you could pretty universally rule out eating food offered to idols. And that meant any participation in the temple feasts or meals where food was known to have been sacrificed to idols, Christians were not allowed, essentially, from participating in that. But there are still some gray areas. What if you don't know? What if you go to your neighbor's house, and I'm not sure if the food they're serving me has been offered to an idol? What if I'm buying food in the market and I don't know if it's been previously offered to an idol? There are gray areas here. And later, 1 Corinthians 10, Paul will speak to this and he'll basically say, if you're at someone's house, don't question it. Just eat what's served to you. Be polite. But if they then say, this food has been sacrificed to idols, say no thank you. And same rule applies in the market. If you don't know, feel free to eat it. But if it's known that it's been offered to idols, abstain from it. All right, now here is where we need to do some theological reasoning. Why would it be okay in some circumstances if you don't know it's been offered to idols? Why would it be okay to eat it? The reason is, is because mechanically, really... Just eating food means nothing. Even if it's been offered to idols, the physical act of consuming food or meat has no inherent spiritual connotation to it. It doesn't mean anything. That's the only way Paul can say, it's fine if you don't know, feel free to eat it, because there's nothing that will happen mechanically by that process that will corrupt you. The reason it might be wrong as if it implies or witnesses or tells that you are participating in idolatry, and that's when it becomes wrong. That, okay, we're leading up to the argument here, that is the knowledge that most of these Corinthians have. We know inherently that there's nothing wrong physically with eating idol food. Therefore, we're justified in eating it, and we can freely eat it because we know that really objectively, there's nothing wrong with it. So Paul is going to address that knowledge. And this is really important for this passage. Paul is not going to argue with them theologically. What he's going to question is, where is your love for your fellow believer? You may be right, But there is a way of being right that is wrong. And that is what Paul is going to address. He's going to address them pastorally and address the motive of love. So Paul says in verse 1, we all have knowledge, right? All of us know this. Okay, we all have knowledge. And you're using that knowledge to justify eating idle food. Fine. That's great that you have that knowledge. Here's the problem with knowledge. Knowledge so often can be used just to puff up, just to make us proud and be arrogant. Those who have knowledge very often are just using that knowledge to serve themselves. They like being right. And knowledge very often just leads to people who are know-it-alls. This, These few verses here are convicting for me because I see myself in this. I am a person who loves being right. And I really don't like being wrong. That in my flesh, in my sinful self, I really want to be right all the time. And that attitude of wanting to be right can lead to really sinful places. And it's a bad temptation because it can be so easily justified because we are all called to know truth. In one sense, we are all called to be Right. We are called to know God truly. So as you read this, don't hear Paul saying that knowledge or truth is bad. That's not what he's saying here. Elsewhere, Paul will call people to know things truly and to have knowledge and to know truth. Paul's going to pray for truth and knowledge for some people. Philippians 1, 9 through 9-11, Paul said to the Philippian church, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul there is going to associate having knowledge and discernment with loving others and praising God and bringing glory to Him, that all those things are bound together. When people ask us for the hope that we have, what would Scripture have us do? Give a reason for that hope. We're not called to say, oh, I don't know. We, do, we don't have knowledge. We don't know anything. We're just clueless as the rest. No. When people ask, why do you have such hope? You say, well, our hope is grounded in a person and the truth of him. In fact, Jesus says he is the truth, and that truth will set you free. Like, Scripture loves truth, and we are to have knowledge of who God is. So, Paul's not saying knowledge is bad, or that we shouldn't have any knowledge. Paul is saying knowledge can really easily make you arrogant and proud and unloving. Anybody who thinks they know as they ought to know does not yet know. And in fact, love is far more important than knowledge. Knowledge can become self-serving. This is what I know. But love inherently serves the other person, by definition. Something we're trying to teach in our own home and remind our kids. Because we need to remind ourselves. Just because you know something doesn't mean you need to say it. Alright, we say that a lot. You don't need to tell your sibling what you know in this context. is something we in our culture need to learn. Just because you're right doesn't mean you're right. Just because you can go online and win an argument doesn't mean you're following Jesus. In fact, very often, when you win your argument, you have abandoned Jesus a long time ago, no matter how right you are. far more important question than whether or not you were right, whether or not you've won the argument and really owned that person. I showed them. Far more important question, have you loved that person? Are you showing them who Jesus is in all of his grace and truth and love? Paul says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, look at this, he is known by God. And that is an interesting turn of phrase because it's not what you'd expect. Look at verse 3. You might expect it to say, but if anyone loves God, he knows God. That would be the most natural phrase to come up next. But instead, Paul says, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Why? Because just knowing something isn't as important as being known. It is far more important to be known by God than to have knowledge. Paul wants to emphasize what is most important, not what we know, but that we are known and we evidence that in love for others. So knowledge is an absolute, knowledge is in everything. Knowledge must must be limited and motivated by love. It's the limitation of knowledge. Now, having said that, Paul's going to speak to the limitation of worthless idols. And that's what his focus is in verses 4 through 6. He's talked about the limit placed on knowledge. Now, he'll talk about the limit that is placed on these idols, the limitation of worthless idols, that they are nothing. Verse 4. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So how does this relate to what Paul's talking about? He's talking about food offered to idols, and Paul says, yes, you are right. In an objective sense, idols are nothing. And eating food offered to idols is nothing. So Paul's going to concede that point here in verses 4 through 6. You who have knowledge, you're correct. Uh, that food offered to idols, in a sense, is, is meaningless because idols are nothing. They're non-real. They don't have any real existence. That is a biblical truth throughout Scripture. One of my favorite passages that touches on this non-reality of idols is Isaiah 44. If you don't know, it's a wonderful passage, because there the prophet Isaiah talks to those who worship idols, and he talks about the person who goes out into the field, and they cut down a tree, and they use that tree, and they say, you know what, I'm, I'm cold and I need food, so I'm going to cut up that tree and I'm going to burn it, and then over that fire, I'm going to eat food. And then I'm going to look at the, what's left over of that tree I just cut up and I say, you know what, I'll make a god to worship. And so I cut up a little god and I bow down to that god that I made and say, worthy are you. right? And, and all that passage, that passage is mocking those who make these stupid, worthless idols out of materials and bow down to them as if they have any real power. And then they might throw it in the fire to keep them warm. In Isaiah 44:18, they know not, nor do they discern these idols for he has shut their eyes that they cannot see, and their hearts that they cannot understand. No one considers nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, Half of it I burned in the fire, I also baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten. And shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before I block a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? And that's what idols are. A lie that you can hold. I love what Habakkuk 2, 18-20 says about idols. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That theology is continued in New Testament, Galatians 4.8. Paul says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And that's how the New Testament understands all false gods. They are either created objects, not real, blocks of wood or gold or silver, or something worse, they are an evil spirit. Those are your two options with false gods. When Paul says in Ephesians 2 that those who followed such gods were following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So you're either following a spirit that works disobedience in people or you're following a block of wood that is nothing. That, those are your options when you're worshipping anything that is not God. By contrast, we worship the one true God. And Paul here repeats what is called the Shema from Deuteronomy 6.4, which means here. And Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That is kind of an ancient Hebrew confession of faith. We serve one God. There is no other. He is the only creator. There are no other gods. That is the faith of the Jewish people. It's the faith of the Christian people. Because Paul says, we believe the same thing. We believe in one God. Though there may be other lords and gods and other things that people worship, we know there is one God. And then he adds one Lord, Jesus Christ. So we have one God with multiple people in that God. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God who is triune. And Paul Puts forward what some believe is kind of a new confession of faith. This may have been actually a, a confession that was passed around, that was known by all this phrase, kind of, kind of became an early confession of faith. He says, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. Notice what he does there with prepositions. Because he changes them and they're important. One God, the Father, by whom everything is made, for whom we exist. All for God. We have our purpose in him. We live for him. One Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom everything was made, through whom we exist. And that is the standard teaching of the New Testament, all of Scripture. God the Father is the creator, and he created through the Son, Jesus Christ. So John 1 says, He was in the beginning with God, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God the Father, our Creator, creating through Jesus Christ. And if that's the case, and if we live for God, then that means we exist through Jesus Christ. Okay, what does all that mean for us? It means the only way to worship our Father and the only way to live out our purpose as created beings is through Jesus Christ. God has created us for him. We find our purpose and our existence for him. We only find that through Jesus Christ, and there is no other way. This is what Paul is affirming here. That if you don't know Jesus Christ, and if you're not living through him for God, you are not living according to your purpose or why you're created. And because we have our existence only in Jesus Christ then all other gods, all other lords are false no matter their name, whether their name is Artemis or Apollo or Athena or Molech or Chemosh or Asher or Baal or Thor or Odin or Allah or Buddha or Vishnu or Brahma or Shiva, all those other gods are worthless. And this is the part as a Christian about your faith that is going to get you in trouble. But if you do not believe this, you are not a Christian. That all other gods are worthless and bowing down to them and serving them is a waste of your time. You might as well pray to a block of wood. No matter what other name is attached to it, that is a false god that will bring you death. We only live through Jesus Christ. And you say, that's going to get me in trouble if I say that out in the world. And yep, and it would have gotten them in trouble too in Corinth. All those other pagan gods, worthless. It's going to be really hard to live in that world if you believe that and hold that. In fact, it was hard for Christians. They were called atheists. Why? Because they didn't believe in all the other gods. You bunch of Christian atheists, you only believe in one? Yeah. So all of this, all of Paul's point here, is that these gods are nothing. Which is why this next section is so shocking, actually, verses 7 through 13, so let's get there. Here's the point of all of Paul's argument here. He speaks to the limitation of personal freedom. The limitation of personal freedom. Paul has just conceded, all these gods, idols, worthless, nothing. You would then expect him to say, so go ahead and eat. Because it doesn't matter. That food offered to them, it doesn't have any significance because they're dead gods who don't mean anything. That is not what Paul says. He says actually it matters a lot. Why? Because of love for your brother. Verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former associations with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. So again, Paul affirms what the Corinthians know, that this knowledge, they have this knowledge, that idols are nothing. Then he says, but not all possess this knowledge. By that, he doesn't mean that not all of your brothers and sisters who are in Christ, not all of them know that God is one and Christ is Lord. They know that. Everybody knows that. But not everybody is able to apply that knowledge in the same way you are. Not everybody is is able to connect the dots that there is one God, one Lord, and therefore I can eat idle food. Not everybody is able to make that connection. Why? Because they used to participate in this. They used to be part of those pagans who offered up sacrifices to idols, and they worshipped idols. And for a lot of them, that means something, what they did. They have a sensitivity about that. So you might know there's no idol, and it doesn't matter, but it's real to them. It might not be real to you, but for them it means something. So when they eat this food, it brings back... All those associations of idolatry and false worship and paganism. And they have sensitive consciences about it. So he calls them weak. He says it's real for them. As I was thinking of this passage, I was reminded of an old friend of mine from Spokane, Washington. When I was there in college, and he was a pastor buddy. His former life, he was part of the Crips. He lived a gang life. And a very close association for him in his gang life was rap music. Like that was, that was it's a very close tie to his former days. And after being Christian for a while, he had first just put away his, his music that he used to listen to in his gang days. But after being Christian for a while, he just turned back on some of it and said, you know what, I'm a Christian now. I know it doesn't mean anything. It's just rhythm and beats and words uh, and it's, I think it's okay for me to listen to. And then he said about a week later, his wife asked him why he was being such a jerk. Like, he, his wife asked him, like, well, how come your personality has changed so much? What's going on? He goes, oh. And when I listen to that music, I have an association with the person I used to be, and I start kind of acting like that. Now, for me, I have no such association with rap music, and, and I feel freedom to listen to it. You know, I would filter for content and lyrics and all that, but it's... It's beats and it's words. What's the big idea? It means nothing to me, and I don't, if I listen to rap music, go back into a former stage of life where I used to be a gangbanger. That's not my association. So I can listen to it freely. But it would be very unloving of me to go to him and say, oh, you should just keep working on it. Just keep listening to it. You're being silly. You're being dumb. And for me to push that upon him and say, no, let's let's listen to it together. It's not being sensitive to what his experience was. It would be a stumbling block for him. It doesn't matter if I have freedom to do it. Paul actually says that your freedoms won't win you any favor with God. You don't get brownie points before God for exercising your freedoms. This is something I would want to say to maybe my generation and younger of Christians. We're really big about exercising our freedoms because we don't want to be fundamentalists like our grandparents were. We don't want to be a fundamentalist, so we want to exercise our liberty and our freedom to do anything we want. So we're really big about our freedoms. And Paul would say, you really don't actually have to exercise your freedoms. You don't get any more points before God. He says, food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. What Paul is saying there is that You are not in better touch with God if you have freedoms to do certain things and you exercise those. You don't have to prove how much you understand God's grace. You don't have to prove how much you understand freedom. You don't get anything by that. So maybe you feel free to drink alcohol, but you know what? You don't get any points for that you feel freedom to go to movies and to observe or not observe Sabbaths or any number of things that you might feel freedom to do, you get no extra points before God for exercising those freedoms. And in fact, if you feel like you must exercise your freedom, you are in fact not free. You are bound and slave to your freedom, so be careful. And Paul more importantly, as you exercise those freedoms, you may hurt your brother or sister. So he says, take care lest you put a stumbling block before them. Uh, so recently, it won't show, but I've been trying to exercise a little bit more. And I've been trying to lift some weights. I do this in my basement where nobody can see me. All right, where it's dark, it's secluded, and, I, and nobody can see. Um, I look like a fool as I'm trying to work out in the morning. So that's been my practice. And I have a couple dumbbells. And every once in a while, I will accidentally leave those out. And what happens is when my dear wife walks by in the dark, what does she do? She stubs her toe on those that I've left out They're literal little stumbling blocks that cause her to fall. Now, I could say I have every right to leave those there. In my freedom, it's my basement too. I can put things where I want. Maybe it was intentional that I left it there in the middle of the carpet. But it would be very unloving for me to do so. The loving thing is for you to put them away so that nobody trips over them. Paul says that would be the loving thing for you to do. Because what happens, okay, now let's get back to this subject of food offered to idols. What happens if you are there eating idol food and it is known and your weak brother sees you doing that? What will happen to them? They will see you and say, oh, I guess it is okay. And they'll copy you because that's what people do a lot of, whether we like to admit it or not, a lot of our morality is imitated and learned by imitation. Again, we're figuring this out with our kids. One of them starts doing something, and the other is like, all right, it's okay, and we'll do it too. And we do that a lot. A lot of our morality is shaped by what we see. So if that person who has a weak conscience sees you doing it, they're going to say, okay, I guess I should do it too. But here's the problem. They don't have the same freedom you do. So as they do it, they are torn and they are conflicted in their conscience. Why? Because, again, participating in that, eating that idle food, meant something to them. It was real to them in a previous life. So now they're conflicted and they think, well, I guess I should just keep doing it. And what's going on? They're actually learning to quiet their conscience and not listen to it. you're teaching them to say, don't worry about your conscience, just do this. And by so doing, you might actually be teaching them not to listen to the Holy Spirit. You read the New Testament, you read Paul's letters carefully, he is very, very careful with people's consciences. And he does not want to do anything That would violate people's consciences. Because to do that is to set people up to violate their own convictions and even maybe to not listen to the Holy Spirit. And then as they do that, they very easily slip into actual idolatry. And that's the other danger. And remember, the apostles had ruled out eating food offered to idols. If you know it, don't do it. If you know it's food offered to idols, don't do it. It was very easy for them to slip into this. So Paul says, if you do this and if you... Enable others to participate in idolatry. Here's the dagger. You're doing this to someone for whom Christ died. And consider what Christ has done. What did Christ do in saving that person and saving you? He actually gave up his freedoms and sacrificed himself, who are weak, or sacrificed himself to save you, who are weak. That is what Christ has done. He had freedom to live for himself. He had freedom to live with God. He had freedom not to be bound to humanity and creation. But he gave up all those freedoms that he felt and experienced. He gave all of them up so that he could live under the constraints of humanity, under the, the chains of a sinful world, and died so that you could live. And he has done that for your brother or sister who is weak then you come around and say, let me put my freedoms upon you. And by so doing, sacrifice that person. How different is that from Jesus Christ who sacrificed himself, gave up his own freedoms? You have no right then to take up your freedoms and slaughter another person. When you do this, you not only sin against that person, you've sinned against Christ himself because that person belongs to Christ as part of his body. And that's where, in the end, Paul says, he makes his final determination, "I'd just rather not eat meat." And that's not a stance on vegetarianism. Meat was the food most often sacrificed to idols. He said, "I'd rather just abstain from it altogether, lest I make my brother stumble." I know it means nothing. I know that. But I don't care. Because love for my fellow believer is more important. Alright, now. We don't have to worry about this, by and large, in our context of food offered to idols, so how does this apply? Can you think of application cases for this? Where you feel freedom, but it's probably better not to exercise that freedom for the sake of your brother. How about something like yoga? Yoga, by itself, movements, stretches, strength training, in and of itself, nothing wrong with it. For most people. For some, there's a real association with spiritual practice there. There's debates about whether that actually has roots in Hinduism and probably came from a dude in Britain. But, for some... There are real spiritual practices that are non Christian that are associated with yoga. So this is why we're never going to do like a Christian yoga training class at church. Most of us we know it's just stretching, it's probably good for you. But for some there might be a real association with non spiritual practices or, or non Christian spiritual practices. So it's probably better just to avoid it. And if you do it, great, do it in your like you know, like me in the basement nobody can see you. No. Keep it to yourself about alcohol? Are we free to drink? Sure. Are we free to get drunk? No. But to consume alcohol. Scripture doesn't say that's sin. But as you practice that, are you loving your brother or sister? How about like gaming? I love card games. I love sports. I love all sorts of gaming. Can we gamble? What about participating in games that are gambling adjacent? You might say, well, that's not a huge problem now. I'm telling you it's going to be one, and I know this because every sports podcast I listen to has advertisers from DraftKings and gambling websites. This is coming. Addiction to gambling is going to be a huge issue for us. So how do we think about that? How do we exercise the freedom we might feel to play fantasy sports or games or that kind of thing? How about what we wear? Do we have an obligation to other people in the clothes that we wear or don't wear? You say, well, I'm not responsible for their thinking. Well, yeah, in a way, yes. And and somebody else's sin is never justified because of what somebody else did. Like, everybody's responsible for their own actions. Of course. But are you choosing to wear things that won't cause another person stumble and you can say well all of that sounds so restrictive And i would say yeah that's love it's what it means to love other people to think not of the freedoms we have first but what loves the other person and maybe like the corinthians you'd say "Well, well they should get their act together and Paul, again, in a sense, kind of agrees. There's a reason he keeps calling them weak. Like, it's not a positive term. In an ideal world, yeah, maybe they should develop in their theology, their understanding, their practice, so that they're strong. That's what we want to get to. But that's not Paul's concern here. Paul's concern is your heart, and are you or are you not loving your neighbor? That is what's most important. Not fighting for your rights. And if you have a problem with that, it probably means freedom has become a bit of an idol for you. And it may be that you need to grow in how you love your brother or sister. Because that is what Christ has done. Laid down his own freedoms for the love of his weak brothers and sisters. So they wouldn't stumble, but rather they would live in the end. In Christ, what is permissible for you must be limited by what is loving for your brother. Would you pray with me? My well, Father and God, as we come to you, we confess we have much room to grow, I have much room to grow in considering first what is loving to another. Lord, I confess my own desire to want to just be right and have it stop there. Lord, let us not stop at being right or being knowledgeable, but let us continue on to doing what is loving and what serves the other. Lord, give us the ability to lay down our freedoms whenever necessary so that we might lift others up and bring them to you. To let that be our heart and motivation because that's your heart. And that's the way of Christ. Help us, Lord, to cling to Him, we pray. Amen.